the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. It's been a great weekend at the Cannon Beach Conference Center with a group of women primarily from the Washington area. But if you're looking for some place to hang out uh, this summer with your family, check out the Cannon Beach Conference Center. What a great weekend. And it was the uh, last live uh, weekend for Liz Curtis Hicks, who um, has been an author of some, what, 36, 37 books. She's been a traveling speaker for 40 years, and she's going to be hanging up her uh, traveling shoes for a full-time position at her church in the next few months. So anyway, had a great weekend. If you were there, it was a blast to hang out with you. Anyway, today we're going to um, take a look, of course, at what's happening in headline news, putting it into perspective and in terms of what we know to be true about this, the future from Scripture. And we'll also um, have a conversation with Charles Martin, author of They Turned the World Upside Down, a storyteller's journey with those who dare to follow Jesus. And we'll tell you about one of those um, individuals who contributed to turning the world upside down, who is a contemporary who passed away at age 83. I'm referring to Fred Carter. He's a little-known, very shy black artist who has died. We'll tell you how you may, in fact, know at least his art, if not him. That's coming up later in the second hour of today's program as well. Well, we're being told by the Oregonian that Oregonians' wages are continuing to soar, but inflation is rising even faster. So that plus becomes a minus very quickly. Well, the average Oregonian's purchasing power is lower today than it was a year ago. Not much news there. Our standard of living is declining. That's what Josh Lerner of the Oregon Office of Economic Analysis told lawmakers on Wednesday while he was delivering the state's quarterly revenue forecast. Well, average wages in Oregon are up 17 percent since the start of the pandemic, according to federal and state data. But price increases have uh, gobbled up most of those gains. And over the past year, inflation has uh, risen so fast that most workers are effectively getting pay cuts. Well, adjusting for inflation, again, talking about here in Oregon, he said that Oregonians' real wages are down 3% in the past year. He said four out of every five workers are losing ground in rising um, to rising prices. Inflation hurts our low-income neighbors the most and those on fixed incomes. They're living paycheck to paycheck. They're spending every single dollar they earn and sometimes more. Rising prices are beginning to eat into consumer spending, threatening to throw the economy back into recession. Remember, you have to have two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Well, earlier this month, for example, Dutch Brothers warned that higher gas prices are leaving its customers with less discretionary income. That reduces the frequency of their visits to the drive through chain. The uh, news sent the Oregon company's stock tumbling. Even so, state economists said the consensus among Oregon businesses uh, that they have consulted with is that a recession isn't likely. Let's hope they're right and other economists are wrong. And they're hopeful uh, signs that inflation may be easing. Used car prices, for example, rose 50 percent from the start of the pandemic through the end of last year. But in recent months, they've fallen modestly. And while gas prices remain high, the rate of increase has slowed dramatically. 
They may not uh, be much relief or that may not be much relief to drivers weary of paying four plus uh, dollars a gallon or even five dollars a gallon. But it suggests a new equilibrium. Well, that's an optimistic view. And there are lots of others suggesting otherwise that we'll see by the summer six dollar gasoline on average across the country. Well, with the Federal Reserve raising interest rates to tame inflation by cooling the economy, also raising the cost of borrowing money, such as for home mortgage or, or ringing up a credit card balance. Layer says that there are hopeful signs the worst of the price increases may soon be in the rearview mirror. There's an opportunity for this to play out uh, in that soft landing scenario, he said. And again, that's a very optimistic view from what I'm hearing from others around the country. Let's hope this one is right and the others are wrong. Well, a federal judge on Friday temporarily blocked the Biden administration from revoking Title 42, technically allowing the continued expulsion of migrants at the southern border on a public health basis. Louisiana Judge Robert Summerhays issued a preliminary injunction, a copy of which was obtained on the Biden administration's directive to end the order on May the 23rd, after two dozen Republican-controlled states launched a lawsuit challenging it. Well, the plaintiffs, the Republican states, claimed that the decision to suspend Title 42 was extremely irresponsible as it would fuel another wave of unprecedented illegal migration, but also because it violated the Administrative Procedures Act. The complaint cited anonymous DHS officials who warned that ending Title 42 would lead to what one DHS agent described as a surge on top of a surge. It also mentioned the massive financial burden likely to be imposed on states as a result of that order. This suit challenges an imminent man-made self-inflicted calamity. The abrupt elimination of the only safety valve preventing this administration's disastrous border policies from devolving into an unmitigated catastrophe, the complaint read. President Biden started uh, or stated rather that the U.S. will send the military to defend Taiwan if the People's Republic of China were to invade the island nation. Very quickly, you didn't want to get involved um, in the Ukraine conflict militarily for obvious reasons. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? A reporter asked the president during a news conference in Japan. Yes, the president replied. You are? The reporter pressed, recognizing that this was a departure from the position the United States had openly stated in the past. That's the commitment we made, the president said, after looking a little bit flustered, a little concerned or confused and then responding. Well, a White House spokesperson said that the administration's policy has not changed. Well, both can't be true. As the president said, our policy has not changed. Well, that isn't what the president said. He reiterated our one China policy and our commitment to peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. He also reiterated our commitment under the Taiwan Relations Act to provide Taiwan with the military means to defend itself. The main one China policy refers to the U.S. recognition of the People's Republic of China as the sole legal government of China, but only acknowledges without endorsing Beijing's claim that Taiwan is part of China. So many of the uh, president's aides and military leaders spent some time walking back the president's comments, which begs the question, so who is making the decisions for the administration? Is it the president plainly stating the U.S. policy on the subject or are others um, reeling the president back in? It was interesting. Minutes after the president made the statement, you could see the eyebrows of military officials in the audience raise. Uh, There are phone calls being made to uh, reporters across the uh, across the spectrum. So a rather interesting statement, which has since been walked back. 
Well, the Taiwanese government expressed regret on Sunday that the administration has chosen to exclude it from its new Indo-Pacific economic framework. We'll tell you more about that when we return after a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Taiwanese government expressed regret on Sunday that the president, the administration, has chosen to exclude it from the new Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. It's a key regional initiative that's being launched by the president in Japan today. As an important econ- uh, economy that plays a crucial role in the global supply chain, Taiwan is definitely qualified for inclusion in the IPEF, Taiwan's central news agency quoted, the island's democracy uh, foreign ministry as saying in a release. It said that despite the setback, Taiwan would continue to actively seek opportunities to join the organization, while in the meantime also exploring ways to deepen the bilateral U.S.-Taiwan trade and investment relationship. Well, ahead of the president's trip to the region, just over half of the U.S. Senate, Republicans and Democrats, had urged the president to include Taiwan in the initiative after members of the administration indicated earlier that it may be left out. Well, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan put the speculation to rest as Air Force One flew from South Korea to Japan on Sunday, confirming that Taiwan won't be part of the launch. Uh, I suppose it was considered too provocative uh, for China. Well, Sullivan said the administration is looking to deepen our economic partnership with Taiwan, including on high technology issues, including on semiconductors and supply chains. But he added, we're pursuing that in the first instance on a bilateral basis while we work with a range of other countries through the IPEF. For all the talk about IPEF as a club of to counter China, it's notable that China was able to influence its membership. That's a comment from Tobias Harris, a senior fellow at the Asia at the Center for American Progress. Why else could Taiwan, a crucial node in regional supply chains, be excluded? Well, the Washington Post has admitted that voting is surging in Georgia, despite the previous reports and claims about voter suppression. Well, the Post's editorial boards previously claimed that the law made voting harder. Well, the Post admitted now over the weekend that the number of Georgians turning out to vote in this year's midterm election primaries was surging despite its previous reporting. In a Saturday piece headlined, Voting is Surging in Georgia Despite Controversial New Election Law, the Post reported that early voting in Georgia was seeing its largest turnout ever, laying waste to its own claims, as well as those of Democrats and other left-wing figures that the law signed by the governor in March of 2021 amounted to Republican attempts to make it harder for people to vote. Well, after three weeks of early voting ahead of Tuesday's primary, record-breaking turnout is undercutting predictions that the Georgia Election Integrity Act in 2021 would lead to a fall-off in voting, reporters Amy Gardner and Matthew Brown admitted. They noted that early in-person voting was more than three times what it was in 2018 in the midterm elections and higher than it was in 2020, the presidential election year. They also detailed an interaction with a black voter at a polling location who expressed surprise over how easy it was to cast a ballot despite hearing about reports of voter suppression. So the narrative they created proved to be false. Gardner and Brown's reporting ran in stark contrast to the Post's previous reporting that Georgia's new voting law would lead to fewer people being able or allowed to vote and that it would make it harder for non-white voters to cast their ballots. I'm sure the apology column will be seen shortly. Well, according to a new letter 
released by San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, will no longer be allowed to receive the Eucharist or communion at Mass in her home diocese. A Catholic legislator who supports procured abortion after knowing the teaching of the church commits a manifestly grave sin, which is a cause of most serious scandal to others. Cordelione writes in the letter addressed to Pelosi from California. The letter continues. You are not to present yourself for Holy Communion. And should you do so, you are not to be admitted to Holy Communion until such time as you publicly repudiate your advocacy for the legitimacy of abortion and confess and receive absolution of this grave sin in the sacrament of penance. Well, Pelosi, who says she's a Catholic, has long been in favor of abortion throughout her career in Congress, beginning in 87. She's voted for several pieces of pro-abortion legislation, as well as voted against abortion bans like the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act of 2003. She was also instrumental in getting the Women's Health Protection Act of 2021, which codified abortion into federal law through the House last year. By passing the Women's Health Protection Act in September, the Democratic House took bold action to to defend health freedom for every person except those in utero and enshrine into law the essential protections of Roe versus Wade. I added that little editorial comment, she said, of the legislation, which eventually failed in the Senate. Well, Cardinal Cordelione, who has served as the Archbishop of the Archdiocese of San Francisco since 2012, has frequently tried to convince Pelosi to change her stance on abortion. In response to her support for the Women's Health Protection Act, the Archbishop helped to organize a Rose and Rosary for Nancy campaign in October of 2021 uh, with the Benedict um, Institute. Thousands of roses were delivered to her office in San Francisco as a result of the campaign. In a video promoting the campaign, the archbishop said this is a critical time in our country when we especially need to pray for our political leaders as we see our country moving more and more in a direction of the culture of death. He mentioned Pelosi specifically adding our leadership is very important. So I invite you all to join me in prayer and sacrifice for the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, from here in San Francisco. In other news, uh, fomenting Roe rage, the White House unleashed its fury at an Oklahoma bill that would ban nearly all abortions. Purportedly, in anticipation of the Supreme Court decision to be uh, be released in a matter of days or even weeks. Dads on duty. Virginia fathers are planning to take their kids' safety into their own hands. Two Virginia brothers have started an initiative to place fathers in local high schools to support faculty and staff as well as deter violence among students. Jimmy and Josh Carter of Chesterfield County, Virginia, who have seven children between them, said that they were inspired by the Dads on Duty initiative in Louisiana, where a group of fathers took matters into their own hands last fall after repeated violence broke out in the Southwood High School in Shreveport, leading to the arrest of 23 students over just a three-day period. Asking whose obstruction is it anyway, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy claims President Biden has never taken his calls amid reports the president is tired of GOP obstructionism. And Dems divided, Speaker Pelosi and Senate Democrats weighed in on a DHS memo and their slow walk of a House bill to protect Supreme Court justices. As the Biden administration warns of a potential surge in violence following a ruling from the Supreme Court on abortion, top Democrats in the House appear to remain at odds with their party in the Senate on whether Congress should take action to ramp up security for the court justices or leave it to law enforcement. 
Well, calling it a slippery slope in an apparent effort to re-energize a sluggish base, Vice President uh, Harris claimed overturning Roe versus Wade would open the door to restricting other rights like same-sex marriage. Now they tell us NBC News finally reported on Hunter Biden's laptop hard drive, revealing a rapid uh, spending spree and possible legal exposure. From the echo chamber, MSNBC, Politico, CBS and Axios parroted President Biden's ultra MAGA label to target certain GOPers. And fact checking the fact checkers, New York Times columnist Gail Collins has been blasted for her inaccurate claims and calling for a full ban on semi-automatic rifles. Officials in major U.S. city uh, are investigating rare virus outbreak. New York City health officials said they are investigating a possible case of monkeypox one day after Massachusetts officials confirmed the first U.S. case this year. Considering, uh, and it's most likely a sexually transmitted um, pox, if you will. Well, considering NATO alliance issues, some question whether Turkey is Russia's secret weapon inside NATO. And President Biden gave a one word answer when asked if he would send U.S. military to defend Taiwan if China were to invade the island nation. He said yes. And the White House has been walking that statement back ever since. There are seven books that reveal the woke transgender education that's being pushed on kids as young as kindergarten in America's biggest city. New York City has a series of books in its um, mosaic independent reading collection that focuses on teaching children as young as first grade and kindergarten about LGBTQ plus and other issues. The uh, reading list, which includes titles uh, on Greta Thunberg and Elizabeth Warren, were created by the New York City Department of Education Library Services, according to the Teaching Books website. The page can only be accessed internally through the DOE's official login for students and teachers. Well, Blasting the Blue, Black Lives Matter's Global Network Foundation donated a massive sum to a radical anti-cop group, despite the fact that those who are uh, most impacted by the... uh, Uh, Defunding the police seem to be uh, black communities calling it the priciest place on earth. Families ask, has the cost of Disney World become unaffordable for the average family? And increasingly, the answer is yes. Well, saying this isn't a game, a a transsexual pioneer criticized modern activism, saying they're indoctrinating kids. The biological female said that the process to... Uh, children's detriment has since deteriorated. Now we have trans with no gender dysphoria, no need for mental health care, self-ID affirmation therapy. Angel, the name of the transsexual, who said he's a huge advocate for mental health care, said that uh, that says to me on some level, some form of indoctrination. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're working our way through some of the news items from the last several days. And later on this hour... Charles Martin, author of They Turned the World Upside Down. We'll also tell you about Fred Carter, who did a little turning of the world uh, himself. He passed away recently. We'll tell you who he was and why you may know his artwork. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, former President Obama advisor Jason Furman is warning the Democrats' anti-price gouging bills are pretty gimmicky and will likely make things worse. And transition to what? President Biden's top economic advisor, Brian Deese, dodged recession questions, claiming the U.S. economy is merely in a period of transition. Well, that's one way of putting it. 
Google purgatory. Florida Senator Marco Rubio has accused Google of censoring his campaign emails, impacting the outcome of an election. One wonders. Calling for supporters to combat disinformation, an MSNBC host slammed an idiot GOP lawmaker for committee questions about late-term abortion. Apparently, the lawmaker said the uh, quiet part out loud. Hungry babies can blame Biden. Well, the political panel on ABC's This Week placed the blame for the nation's baby formula crisis directly at President Joe Biden's feet on Sunday with senior national correspondent Terry Moran saying the buck stops in the Oval Office. Party backing. Democrats praised President Biden on CBS, ABC and CNN for doing a very good job doing well by any metric except, well, inflation. Former Congressman Jason Chaffetz says that Title 42 issues show a lack of political will for the Biden administration on the border. That was, of course, snatched from them in in that a judge has indicated they cannot um, revoke it. Iranian uh, an Iranian colonel has been assassinated. The Iran Revolutionary Guard Colonel Hassan Syed uh, Kodai was shot dead uh, by unidentified gunmen on a motorbike in Tehran. The backstory yet to be determined. Attacking her own state, Stacey Abrams says Georgia is the worst state in the country to live in, despite owning multiple houses there and running for governor. Amy or Adams rather acknowledged such a statement would be politicized. Of course, she's a politician making a political speech, so I guess it's not surprising. And further explained that her state has lots of room for improvement on issues like mental health and incarceration, which I suppose would be true of All 50 states. Energy Secretary Jennifer uh, Granholm denied the Biden administration has culpability in the high gas uh, gas prices. Spencer Brown writes that on Thursday morning in a Senate Armed Services Committee hearing, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm repeatedly refused to acknowledge that the administration's war on U.S. energy has caused gas prices to rise since the president took office and started cracking down on domestic energy production. Even after Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri laid out the proof of the administration anti-fossil fuel policies that have limited supply and driven up costs. Granholm still wouldn't accept any responsibility for the soaring costs of gas as the national average for regular unleaded hit another all-time high on Thursday morning. Town Hall reports that Senator Hawley of Missouri just nuked Secretary Granholm for refusing to admit that the energy policies of the administration have increased gas prices. El Paso is um, Texas preparing to declare a state of emergency or um, as or if Title 42 ends. Well, it will at least be held in place, according to a judge. El Paso County in Texas planned to declare a state of emergency as it prepared for the surge of immigration when the administration lifted the Title 42 health authority, allowing summary deportation of migrants. But as mentioned, A judge has at least temporarily suspended the administration's plans. The $40 billion Ukraine aid package passed both the House and the Senate. The president will sign it. The Senate passed a nearly $40 billion military and economic aid package to help Ukraine repel Russian invasion, sending the bill to the president's desk and bringing America's commitment to almost $54 billion. The 86 to 11 vote was overwhelmingly bipartisan, with all Democrats and most Republicans voting yes. The Republicans who opposed the bill cited its price tag and misgivings about long-term involvement in funding a foreign war. 
Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said he wished the vote was unanimous and he worried about the message it would send to America's enemies that it wasn't. While senators in both parties want this package done, it is beyond troubling to see a growing circle of Senate Republicans who oppose Ukrainian funding, the the, uh, senator said. Breitbart, uh, in response, says the Ukraine aid package almost passed through the House with overwhelming Democrat and Republican support, although 57 Republicans voted against the legislation. Newly surfaced video shows potential Russian war crimes in Ukraine. The New York Times reports that witness testimony and videos obtained by the New York Times show how Russian paratroopers executed at least eight Ukrainian men in a Kiev suburb on the 4th of March, a potential war crime. BBC reports that a 21-year-old Russian soldier has pled guilty to killing an unarmed civilian in the first war crimes trial in Ukraine since the war started. Uh, He admitted shooting a 62-year-old man a few days after the invasion began. He faces life in jail. The nation's strictest abortion legislation passed the Oklahoma legislature and awaits the governor's signature. Oklahoma's legislature passed a near-total ban on abortion on Thursday, deputizing enforcement of the law to private citizens. If signed by the governor, the legislation would be the toughest in the nation, making Oklahoma the only state to currently ban abortion at any stage of pregnancy. The bill passed the state Republican-led House of Representatives by a vote of 73 to 16 and now heads to the governor's a desk, Kevin Stitt, who has said he would sign any anti-abortion bill that crosses his desk. The law is set to take effect immediately upon his signature. A Christian school is under fire for upholding Christian values. Imagine that, a Christian school actually living up to its uh, core tenets. A homework assignment given to several middle schoolers at a Christian academy in Louisville encourages students to persuade an imaginary friend to reject homosexuality. And parents, members of the LGBTQ community and others aren't pleased. Albert Moeller weighs in, saying Christian Academy is the largest private school system here in the Kentucky area, and it is a school that has had a long history. We've also, um, we're also looking at a school that has clear doctrinal positions on these issues, upholding marriage as exclusively the union of a man and a woman, a school that has behavioral expectations, and a school that's very upfront about that requirement uh, to parents who bring their children and enroll them in the Christian Academy to sign an acknowledgement that they understand what the school teaches and the behavioral expectations of the school. But let's just stand back for a moment because the importance of this is not just in Louisville. It's not just about one school or school system, not just about one homework assignment. This is about where we stand as Christians in an increasingly secular and increasingly morally progressive society. We're looking at an effort there to try to shame a school into changing its policy. And that's exactly what's going on. That's how the story broke. President Biden um, has made uh, makes first presidential visit to Asia. I'm sure the U.S. uh, uh, the southern border uh, is next on the president's agenda. I say hopefully. Well, as North Korea may be preparing for the ICBM test launch, um, CNN's president uh, uh, rather reports that President Biden departed on Thursday on an alliance boosting visit to Asia, a belated first trip to a region that remains central to his foreign policy goals, even as his focus has been drawn away. Biden stops in two staunch U.S. allies, South Korea and Japan, are meant to bolster partnerships in a moment of global instability. And while the president and his team have spent much of uh, their time and resources on Russia's invasion in Ukraine, provocations from North Korea have intensified and China's contentions 
uh, continues rather to flex its economic and military might as he uh, touches down in Seoul. The region's tensions will be palpable. Hispanic approval of the uh, president has dipped to 26 percent. The president's approval rating among Hispanic Americans has plummeted to 26 percent, according to a poll on Wednesday from Quinnipiac University. The president is less popular among Hispanics than any other demographic, including age and gender. The poll found the same Quinnipiac poll conducted last year put Hispanic support for the president at 55 percent. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back after a quick break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in the second hour, Charles Martin, They Turned the World Upside Down, is the title of his book. We'll also introduce you to Fred Carter. He's a little known, very shy black artist. He has died, but his work lives on. It was very popular in the 70s. Some of you might even remember. Well, Governor DeSantis is cracking down on drug trafficking in his state. That's Florida. He signed a bill Thursday cracking down on drug trafficking, increasing the mandatory minimum sentence for those convicted of dealing fentanyl and making the sale of methamphetamine, resulting in death, a capital felony punishment by life in prison or execution. Governor DeSantis signed the legislation to combat the flow of fentanyl from the open southern border. ABC reported that the legislation adds methamphetamine to the list of specified controlled substances. And if that substance causes the death of a person, prosecutors can pursue a first degree felony murder charge. The legislation also enhances the penalties for the sale of a controlled substance within a thousand feet of substance abuse treatment facilities. Hillary Clinton approved the release of the Steele dossier to the media. Her former campaign manager, Robbie Mook, admitted well, National Review reports that when Mook bracingly testified that Clinton herself approved the campaign proposal to leak the back channel smear to the media that enabled Durham to do exactly what he had hoped to do, place Sussman's alleged false statement in a larger context of a Clinton driven conspiracy. MSE NBC, or I should say MSN's um, Version Sussman has been charged with making a false statement to the FBI when he told former FBI general counsel James Baker back in September of 2016, less than two months before the presidential election, that he was not doing work for any client when he requested and attended a meeting where he presented purported data and white papers that allegedly demonstrated a covert communications channel between the Trump organization and Alpha Bank, which has ties to the Kremlin. Special counsel John Durham's team alleges that Sussman was, in fact, doing work for two clients, the Hillary Clinton campaign and a technology executive, Rodney Joff. Following the meeting with uh, Baker, Sussman billed the Clinton campaign for his work. Well, New York Post says that James Baker also told jurors he would have treated the white paper and other material Sussman gave him in September much differently if he had known that the Fusion GPS firm then working for the Clinton campaign was involved. As mentioned, a judge has blocked the lifting of Title 42. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention cannot move forward with the plan to discontinue pandemic-related emergency rules that allow U.S. border agents to rapidly expel migrants to Mexico or their home countries on public health grounds, a federal judge in Louisiana ruled on Friday. Judge Robert Summerhays of the U.S. District Court of Lafayette, Louisiana, issued a preliminary injunction blocking the administration from ending the restrictions known as Title 42 on the 23rd. 
when the CDC had planned to stop authorizing the border expulsions. Political reports that the majority of Americans oppose the administration's decision to end the public health order used to expel migrants at the U.S. border, according to a new political Harvard survey, underscoring how a law designed to stop the spread of disease is now widely seen as the best way to control immigration. The survey found that 55 percent of American adults oppose ending the use of the order known as Title 42 to prevent migrants from entering the U.S., compared to 45 percent who think the order should end. Americans continue to worry about inflation and the economy. Pessimism is not only present, but growing. CBS reports that America's mood is uneasy and worried amid continued inflation and stock market declines. Large majorities describe their mood as such, and the percentage who call the economy bad has hit high for the Biden um, hit highs rather for the Biden presidency. The number who say things in the country are going badly overall is at the highest level of the uh, president's uh, tenure, too, as pessimism about the market, the economy and prices drive views looking forward and outweighs optimism about both jobs and coronavirus as we head into summer. Thankfully, my confidence and hope is not based on what's happening in the economy, who's in the White House, for that matter, the State House. Hyundai plans to invest $5.5 billion in a Georgia plant to build electric vehicles. Uh, on Friday, Hyundai Motor confirmed plans to spend the $5.5 billion to build its first dedicated electric vehicle and battery manufacturing facilities in the U.S. The plants will be located outside Savannah, Georgia, in Bryan County, the company said. The operations are expected to open during the first half of 2025 with an annual production capacity of 300,000 vehicles, according to the South Korean automaker. About 8,100 new jobs are expected to be created. Facing a pilot shortage, airlines are considering a reduction in the number of required training hours. According to Business Insider, as the pilot shortage continues to rock the airline industry, carriers are struggling to fulfill their flight schedules, and some are even trying to reduce required training hours to get more pilots in the air. More pilots, less training. On May 13th, Alaska Airlines CEO apologized in a YouTube video for continued flight cancellations that have been plaguing the carrier. He blamed the pilot shortage, saying we had 63 fewer pilots than we had planned for when we built our schedules, which caused a ripple effect. The Seattle-based carrier is just one example of airlines struggling to find enough pilots to handle the busy post-pandemic travel surge. According to Bloomberg, Delta Airlines, American Airlines and United have all cut regional flying in recent months due to the shortage of the United uh, with United rather grounding 100 regional planes over the issue because of the lack of pilots. Carriers are considering changing longstanding requirements to get more pilots flying sooner, like nixing degree requirements, dropping the mandatory number of flight hours needed to be hired and increasing the pilot retirement age. In January, Delta announced it would end the requirement for pilots to uh, have a four year degree, saying they are uh, there are qualified candidates who have gained more than the equivalent of a college education through years of life and leadership experience. Gavin Newsom has spent California's $98 billion budget surplus. 
has acted untouchable ever since surviving recall efforts last year. The Wall Street Journal reports that many GOP states are using their windfalls to cut taxes, but not California. Mr. Newsom proposes to spend his surplus on buying votes and ameliorating the hashtag California problems that progressive policies have created. The biggest budget winner, as usual, is the teachers unions. Public schools will get $128 billion, a 25% increase over pre-pandemic levels, though student enrollment has shrunk by 270,000. School shutdowns and California's woke curriculum have spurred many parents to seek alternatives. The San Francisco Archbishop has denied House Speaker Nancy Pelosi communion due to her stance and advocacy on abortion. The San Francisco Archbishop announced Friday that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is barred from receiving Holy Communion due to her pro-abortion stance, marking an escalation in a decades-long tension between the Roman Catholic Church and liberal Democratic politicians on the subject. Cordelione has written to the California Democrat, informing her that she should not present herself for Holy Communion at Mass and that priests will not distribute communion to her if she does present herself. Russia has uh, terminated gas exports to Finland. The Associated Press points out that Russia halted gas exports to neighboring Finland on Saturday, a highly symbolic move that came just days after the Nordic country announced it wanted to join NATO and marked a likely end to Finland's nearly 50 years of importing natural gas from Russia. The measure, taken by the Russian energy giant Gazprom, was in line with an earlier announcement following Helsinki's refusal to pay for the gas in rubles as Russian President Vladimir Putin has demanded European countries do since Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February. An Oklahoma lawmaker has suggested a bill requiring vasectomies for young men in response to the newly passed pro-life anti-abortion law. The Business Insider reports that the Oklahoma state representative proposed an idea for the legislation that would make uh, vasectomies mandatory for young men in the state. Speaking before a floor of legislators, State Representative Mickey Dolan said on Thursday that he is thinking about introducing the legislation next year. I would invite you to co-author a bill that I'm considering next year that would mandate that each male, when they reach puberty, get a mandatory vasectomy that's only reversible when they reach the point of financial and emotional stability. Interesting to see what happens with that legislation, if it's actually ever actually penned. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And we want to um, give away in the second hour a pair of tickets to see Maverick City Music with Kirk Franklin. So keep your eyes and ears, well, I guess just your ears, peeled for that coming up in our next segment after news and traffic here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Back to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up, we'll have a conversation with Charles Martin. They turned the world upside down. And I'll tell you a little bit about Fred Carter. He is little known, rather shy. He was a black artist. He has now died, but he leaves something of a legacy. And for some, it'll be a memory that you hadn't made the connection with. So we'll get into that later in the program as well. Before we get started, though, I want to give you an opportunity to win a pair of tickets to see Maverick City Music with Kirk Franklin. Well, Maverick City Music and Kirk Franklin, rather, are bringing their Kingdom Tour to the Moda Center in Portland on July the 20th, along with Jonathan McReynolds, one of my all-time favorites, great songwriter. Anyway, 
and house fires. And KPDQ has two ways for you to win your way into the show. You can, of course, listen to this program. We're going to be giving away a pair of tickets momentarily. Uh, or you can enter online at kpdq.com. So whichever way you choose to do it, if you're unsuccessful here now, you can always go to the website and there are all the important details about the concert and how you can win tickets. We want to give away a pair of tickets to our third caller, caller number three, and the number to call 800 845-2162. That's 800-845-2162. A pair of tickets to Maverick City Music with Kirk Franklin, uh, Jonathan McReynolds, and House Fires. That's coming to the Moda Center on July the 20th. And Sam Moppin will be happy to take your call. Caller number three. Well, on the baby formula crisis, New York City has declared a state of emergency. A Democratic New York City Mayor Eric Adams declared a state of emergency on Sunday with a nationwide baby formula shortage. He made the announcement on Sunday and his office said that the order will give the New York City Department of Consumer and Worker Protection power to prevent price gouging for baby formula under um, New York City rules. The New York City mayor said that the shortage has caused unimaginable pain and anxiety for families in the city. I'm noticing lots of folks are posting pictures of retail outlets here in the Portland metro area informing families, hey, I saw some formula here or there's some formula there. So I appreciate that as one source, but it's uh, something of a challenge. The Census Bureau apparently miscounted in favor of Democrats. The U.S. Census Bureau reported that it uh, miscounted 14 states' population numbers for the 2020 census. Of those 14 states, eight were overcounted while six were undercounted. Interestingly, the majority of states whose populations were overcounted are blue states, whereas the majority of those that were undercounted just happened to be heavily red states. Well, the state with the highest overcount was Hawaii, whereas the state with the greatest undercount was Arkansas. With Hawaii, it was overcounted 6.8%. Arkansas, minus 5%. The rest of the overcounted states included Delaware, Rhode Island, Minnesota, New York, Utah, Massachusetts, and Ohio. The undercounted states were Texas, Illinois, Florida, Mississippi, Tennessee, and the aforementioned Arkansas. China tipped its hand on Taiwan while a network of retired lawmakers connected to the Chinese Communist Party has been exposed. It's no secret that Beijing has its eyes set on taking the island nation of Taiwan through the use of force. The question has been not one of if, but when China will act. Well, given how poorly Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine has gone, including the world's raising of severe sanctions against Russia, Beijing has taken note. Chinese strongman Xi Jinping instructed top-level government officials to shed their overseas assets. In other words, the order is for government officials to insulate themselves from potential international sanctions. Clearly, Xi has not changed his mind about complete reunification with Taiwan. Excuse me. Meanwhile, it's been revealed that a number of former U.S. lawmakers have been working to boost the Chinese Communist Party's influence in America. A nonpartisan transparency group called Project on a Government Oversight observed the existence of a shadow lobbying operation between the, um, the Association of Former Members of Congress, the Capitol Council and the Exchange Foundation that peddles uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party propaganda in Washington. The Exchange Foundation is a think tank that has deep ties to both Democrats and the Chinese government. 
Well, Netflix is dumping several of its woke shows following Netflix executives memo to employees to essentially get tolerant or get lost. The streaming giant made more moves that appear to go against the left's woke doctrine. They pulled the plug on several woke shows that have been in the works, including one uh, from Ibrahim uh, uh, X. Kendi titled Anti-Racist Baby intended for preschoolers, Netflix also dropped Kendi's stamped racism, anti-racism, and you. On top of that, they announced that it's uh, canceling Meghan Markle's planned feminist animation series intended for children. That was about a 12-year-old girl's voyage from self-discovery as she was in, uh, she encountered famous women in history. Three Senate Democrats reintroduced a gun control bill that would require people to get a federal firearm license to procure a gun and calling it a politically motivated hit piece. Elon Musk is facing a sexual assault claim from a SpaceX flight attendant. <clears throat> Starbucks is um, to cover employees, abortion, tourism and trans surgeries. And uh, Russia has m- removed top com. Um, com- commanders over their war failures, the U.K. Defense Ministry has reported. And Turkey plans to block Sweden and Finland in their NATO bids over home territories. And in an unexpected but much-needed update on the border crisis, the administration's plan to end Title 42 has come to an end, at least temporarily. President Biden vows to defend Taiwan, but the White House has walked that back ever since. The first shipment of baby formula arrived in Indianapolis from Germany. And San Francisco, the archbishop, has barred uh, pro-abortion Nancy Pelosi from receiving communion. President Biden signed the $40 billion aid package for Ukraine during his uh, trip to Asia. And Russia is claiming total control of Ukraine's Mariupol. The Pentagon is weighed deploying special forces to guard the Kiev embassy that was opened last week. Well, on this day in history, 1915, Italy declares war on Austria-Hungary during World War I. 1939, the Navy submarine USS Squalus sinks during a test dive off Portsmouth, New Hampshire. 1958, Wilt Chamberlain announces he's leaving the University of Kansas to turn pro. Since he's unable to sign with an NBA team for another year, he chooses to play with the Harlem Globetrotters to prepare for his pro career. 1984, Surgeon General C. Everett Koop issues a report saying there is very solid evidence linking cigarette smoke to lung disease in non-smokers. 2018, NFL owners approve a new policy allowing players to protest during the national anthem by staying in the locker room, but forbidding players from sitting or taking a knee if they're on the field. And finally, on this day in history, the federal judge rules that President Trump violated the First Amendment when he blocked critics on Twitter because of their political views, something Twitter does all the time. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, Charles Martin, author of They Turned the World Upside Down, a storyteller's journey with those who dared to follow Jesus. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in the first century, believer didn't just mean someone who heard and agreed with Jesus. It actually meant someone who acted on that belief. And when the outside world saw the faith of these new believers, they declared they turned the world upside down. You can read more in the 17th chapter of Acts. Well, that's the kind of believer my next guest, Charles Martin, wants to be. The kind who understands that the truth of Jesus' life, death and resurrection is so powerful it reshaped history. 
the kind of believer who lives with that same world-changing faith today. Well, in his second nonfiction work, They Turn the World Upside Down, a storyteller's journey with those who dare to follow Jesus, he uses his talents as a novelist to walk readers through the lives of the disciples in the aftermath of the resurrection and as they spread the message of the gospel and turn the world upside down. He illuminates key moments from Scripture and shares stories from his own life as a disciple. Well, Charles Martin is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with 15 novels and two nonfiction books. He and his wife, uh, Christy, they live in Jacksonville, Florida. He joins us today to talk about his latest nonfiction. They turn the world upside down. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I have to tell you, you write beautifully. And the fact that you're a novelist, I think, was very evident, even in the prologue, as you um, wrote a little bit about the, the events that took place following Jesus' resurrection. You painted such a vivid picture that for the first time, I imagined aspects of the story that I had never thought of before. So kudos on just writing well and telling a story we all need to hear in such a compelling way that we... Uh, I think readers will be uh, compelled to go deeper. Well, I did that. Thank you. I did that then, and, I, and I, even today, when I'm you know working on whatever's coming next, I, anytime I deal with scripture and I'm I'm looking at it through the lens of me as you know Charles Martin, the novelist, I remember the admonition in Revelation that says it's really it's really bad for anybody that comes along and adds to this thing. So I'm trying to, like, the the thing that you talk about where I'm adding color or flavor or whatever, I'm trying to interpret Scripture using Scripture. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm hoping that I've not added. I'm hoping that I've, I've, you know, I dug into Scripture enough, and I'm able to, you know, draw from it, draw from history, and add some, I don't know, something that wasn't there before that kind of brings you into it. And, and I think I'm also careful to say, look, Scripture is here. It says what it says. I'm kind of over here. I'm trying. I don't know that what I'm saying is absolutely perfect. I don't know that so and so was standing at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. But if he had done to me, but what he did to them, I'd be there. So anyway, that's how I went about it. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciated that you you gave some context that helped me to relate. It wasn't adding to the story, but you reminded us, for example, when they're standing in a particular place, the events that took place in the surrounding area, and it it gave me a context that. I don't know. I, I just marveled at. So I, I think you've done a good job without adding in a way that Scripture says you shouldn't. So let me just commend you for that. Thank you. Well, let me ask you, what motivated you to take on this uh, story? It's a nonfiction book. And as I mentioned, most of your writing has been uh, fiction. But you've taken on uh, perhaps one of the most fascinating stories following the resurrection of Jesus, of his disciples, and what it meant, what it took to turn the world upside down. Why take this on? Well, I was, I don't know, I was 12 or so novels kind of into my career, and I was sitting there one day, uh, and I began having a kind of a conversation with the Lord saying something that sounded like, Lord, I'm really grateful that you let me do what I do, but if I could push pause on my fiction, I would love to to sort of tell the story of you and me and kind of what you've revealed to me about you through your word. And long story short, I, I, I pitched my publisher she liked the idea. She'd seen some of the stuff I'd done before. So that, that produced a book called What If It's True? Where I really look at, mm-hmm. you know, is Scripture, is it really true today? You know, can we look at it 2,000 years after Jesus said those things, and are they as true today as they were then? Well, when I finished that, she <laughs> Daisy said to me, do you have any more nonfiction? I said, well, the story's not over. It doesn't end at the cross. There is an empty tomb. 
And uh, she said, okay, write that one. So they turned the world upside down, really came out of me looking at the lives of the disciples who, when he walked into the upper room, their Jesus' own description of them is that they were filled with unbelief. So he takes them from a place of unbelief and not being able to just wrap their head around what they're looking at. And by the time we get to Acts 16 or 17, when Paul walks into Thessalonica, he and those with him are described as these who are they who have turned the world upside down or upended the inhabited earth. And it's really a derogatory term because they now have what people people perceive as the power to take on Rome. So it was just me wanting to write part two of the story because it, you know, it, it, the story of Jesus doesn't end at the cross. There is an empty tomb. Let's let's take a moment and uh, consider what it means to turn the world upside down. I mean, most of us don't really create even a breeze in the world. They turned the world upside down. These were not people who had the completed scriptures. They were living out what <laughs> would become the completed scriptures, but they had received the power necessary to make such a dramatic impact on the world they lived in. They didn't have the freedoms and the resources that we have, and yet they literally turned the world upside down. Can you comment on that fact for a moment? Well, when these folks, you know, Jesus Jesus ascends off the Mount of Olives, and he, you know, all of the disciples and their families are there with him. They watch him disappear, something like Haley's comet appears. And those folks start walking down the mountain. And I think, you know, Scripture doesn't say this, but I think every single one of them walked down that hill thinking to themselves, okay, what on earth do we do now? We have his commands. We've walked with him. We've followed him. We know what he told us to do, but we don't have the power. And then a couple of days later, the roof starts to shake and Pentecost occurs, and they are filled with the Spirit of God because he's been sent from the throne room to fill them. And from there... They walked out of there, now empowered to do the very thing he said to do. Jesus told him, he said, these things I've done, meaning these miracles I've done, these signs and wonders, these things I've done and you will do because I go to be with the Father. So they just believed him. And this is one of the things I try to talk about in the book. They believed what he said, and then they just went and did it. It was believe and do, believe and do. It was really that simple. It wasn't rocket science. If it was, we certainly couldn't do it. So, <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Well, what's your take on the <laughs> disciples? Why do you think Jesus chose these particular individuals uh, to, to serve in this way and ultimately to orchestrate the upheaval of the, the entire known world? Well, that's a great question. I don't know. Sometimes I get asked questions like that. I think it's above my pay grade. Maybe a more <laughs> a fair question for me is why would the Lord choose me? And yeah. I can't answer that one either. I, I don't know. I can't understand why the God of the universe, this one that we read about in Revelation, whose eyes are a flame of fire, hair white, you know, sword coming out of his mouth, name written on his thigh, feet of burnished bronze. But he sits on a throne and there are 24 elders around him and they're all on their face and they've thrown their crowns at his feet. And the heavenly host is singing at the top of their lungs and I don't pretend to understand all of Revelation or what it means. or you know, I, I mean, All I know is that King of Kings, that Alpha and Omega, that beginning and that end, who spoke all of this and you and me into existence, left that throne to come here on a prisoner swap, a rescue mission for us. And I can't, I'm not worthy of that. And I can't wrap my head around it. So why did he choose them? I don't know. I have even less answer as to why he chooses me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Your first chapter is um, titled The Death of the Only Innocent Man. And that would, of course, be Jesus having lived a sinless uh, life. And again, you sort of fill out um, the picture of the events that we know Scripture uh, describes for us of what happened. And I I guess uh, the book really focuses on what happens next. You have these ordinary guys who have proven themselves incapable of grasping everything that Jesus says, incapable of uh, having the courage to stand with him at his most challenging moments. And he has now charged them with bringing the gospel to the world. Um, And they have to have had some confusion about what that meant or how they would go about it until Jesus fulfilled that promise that he would send his spirit. Sure. I try to look at their lives through the lens of what did the Lord have to do in them after Mm -hmm. the resurrection? Because they're all a bunch of misfits like us. I mean, take, for instance, the loudmouth spokesman, you know, of the group, Peter, who at the crucifixion, we all know, denies Jesus. And so he and, and, and then upon the resurrection, he's he's full of shame. He's draped in shame, wrapped in it. And he doesn't quite know what to do. He knows Jesus has returned but he can't even face him. So he 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 does the thing that he the only thing he knows to do, which is go back to his previous life. So he says, "I'm going fishing," and all the other jokers following back back to the north into the Galilee. And notice Peter is now no longer following Jesus. He's back in his old life, doing what he knew to do, and he's draped in shame. And we see this beautiful story of Jesus drawing Peter back in, and he. You know, he builds the fire on the bit of charcoal fire, which immediately brings Peter's mind back to the night he did, he betrayed Jesus and denied him because he was around the he's there with the girl and he's around a charcoal fire. So as soon as Peter smells that, he's like, "Oh no, my goose is cooked." And he sees Jesus, and he also doesn't say, "Hey, tell me to come to you." He doesn't feel worthy to walk on water, so he wraps his cloak around him, which is different than anybody else. Like Bartimaeus threw his cloak down, Peter wraps his around himself to go swimming lands on the beach. He can't even look Jesus in the face. And in just beautiful Jesus, mercy-filled fashion, he restores Peter. And it's just this beautiful, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, Lord. And and, then Jesus says the very two words that Peter needs to hear, which is, hey, follow me. And now he knows he's not disqualified. And from there, we see the shame fall off him. And in Acts 2, Peter walks up and gives probably the second best sermon in the history of sermons. And 3,000 people are added to the number. And Peter becomes who we all hope he becomes. And so, I don't know, I just looked at it from the standpoint of what did the Lord need to do in these people to get them to the point that they're effective in his kingdom for his purposes and his will. And does he do that in us? And yes, I think he does. Yeah, that's the the larger question. I think it's easier for us to read the scriptures and to believe what happened with these particular uh, men who were followers of Jesus. But it's harder for us to recognize that we have access to the same uh, power that they did. Now we need to take a quick break. We'll pursue that when we return in just a moment. Uh, once again, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with um, Charles Martin. He is the author of They Turned the World Upside Down. It's just a beautifully written uh, retelling of what the scripture says and a challenge to us. Do we have access to the same resource they did to turn our world upside down, even if that's just the neighborhood or our office? We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. 
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with author Charles Martin and his second nonfiction work, They Turned the World Upside Down. He um, uses his talents as a novelist to walk readers through the lives of the disciples in the aftermath of the resurrection and as they spread the message of the gospel and turn the world upside down. You remind us that Matthew concludes his gospel with these amazing words. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then um, uh, Mark ends uh, with this scathing account. He appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Doubt was a, an issue for these disciples, and f- with that uh, backstory, we read that they turned the world upside down. What happened with the disciples that turned them from these uh, doubting, uh, questioning uh, men who had known Jesus had seen him after being resurrected uh, and then turned the world upside down. They they weren't quite sure what to do, but gathered together, waited and turned the world upside down. What happened? Yeah, I think they took it in baby. I think they took it in baby steps. Um, all, all, all I know to when I look at him, the, the, the prism through which I see him, I, I just see him taking one step of faith and then another step of faith and then another step of faith. And they preached the gospel of the kingdom and they laid hands on the sick and the sick were healed and, Demons were cast out, and you know the blind see and the lame walk. And they, I think they just did it as it came about. They just bumped into somebody who's blind or lame or whatever, and they say, "Rise and get up and walk in the name of Jesus." And oh, they lay hands on the sick and, and tell people, uh, you know, believe in or believe on the name of Jesus that He is Yeshua Hamashiach, the, the Messiah. And I don't think they got it all at once. I don't think they mastered. You know, they, they didn't. They didn't get to the end from you know at the very beginning. I think it was a walk. I think it was. You know, they made they goofed, they stumbled some, whatever. But I think the thing that the Lord did with them is He took their unbelief and through little acts of faith, that unbelief became belief, and belief in practice, I think, becomes faithfulness. And I think that's who they finally became. I think they became faithful followers of the Lord. You know, the scripture says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. And we walk by faith and not by sight. And I think they just did that. And something about their belief, like they they just got to the point where they believed his words more than their circumstances and more than what they could see with their eyes. You write about Pentecost and the role that played in emboldening and empowering because they were given power to do what they did that that resulted in such a dramatic shift in the known world. Um, talk a bit about uh, uh, Pentecost and the power that Jesus had promised he would provide them and the difference it made for them and whether or not it makes a difference, fast forwarding to the 21st century, the difference it might make now. Well, Pentecost falls 50 days after Passover. So Peter preaches on the southern steps of the temple. The Spirit of God falls, as he's promised a couple of times in the Old Testament. The Father says, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. He did that, empowered the disciples, and then those, you know, the believers who walked with him. And we see sort of the ripple effects of that. If you follow the the disciple Philip, Philip is actually the only... The only person in Scripture who's given the name the evangelist, he's the only person described as an evangelist. Now, Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, but the only one ever described as an evangelist is Philip. 
And it says that when he would enter a town, he would proclaim Christ, meaning Jesus is the Messiah, the kingdom of heaven is near. And when he did that, demons were cast out, the, the sick were healed, and people got baptized. And it was, it was as if the kingdom of heaven had come to wherever he was. And for me, that's just kind of been the model. It was just really simple. Jesus, I mean, Philip just proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. He is the Son of God. He did come and live a sinless life and die on the cross for our sins. He's risen. Uh, he rose from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And to help us, he sent his Spirit. It was just, that was the gospel. So, I don't know, I think they just believed him and they did it. For many believers in the 21st century, we don't have any difficulty reading what the disciples did, their faithful service, and historically we know how many of them served um, beyond what the scriptures tell us, and many lost their lives in that, that process. But it may be more difficult to imagine that we have the capacity, or the call, uh, perhaps, uh, to turn the world upside down as our world is defined. And again, our sphere of influence may be relatively small. We may have uh, broader influence, but we have access to the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Where mm-hmm. does our timidity come from and what do we what do we do with that? Well, I think the timidity we have is the same timidity they have mm-hmm. they had, and it was just you know it's just us uh, so I think when the the writer of Hebrews says something like, "Take care." lest any of you be overcome by a, an evil, unbelieving heart. So then and now, unbelief was kind of their problem and our problem. The thing that I, I think, I think to some extent, it may be, I don't know, I don't want to compare us to them, but we have the added difficulty now in that the gospel has been preached for 2,000 years, and during that time, people have abused it. Mm-hmm. And they've certainly abused the power of the Holy Spirit. So we today, and certainly in 21st century, you know, United States of America, have all of these examples of all of the places where, you know, people have abused the the power, role, truth, you know, of the Holy Spirit today. And so what what we think of are big hair, TV, television, planes, jets, you know, the, the I don't know, pick your abuse, but we have the added difficulty of now trying to filter through the abuse and separating it from the truth of Scripture. And one of the things I try to make a case for in the book is that the abuse that we've seen or experienced or even heard of or people have told us about does not negate the truth that in script that is in scripture and that Jesus tells us and promises us, I will send the helper to you. Now if you love me, obey my commands. So I I try to give us, you know, a little bit of understanding that it, uh, maybe it's maybe it's a different kind of difficulty for us today because we have to wrestle through the abuses. But the abuses of the few or the church or whatever don't negate the truth that is in Scripture. You not only write about the disciples who walked with Jesus and who turned the world upside down, but you write a little bit about your own journey as a disciple. Tell us a little bit about your um, your walk and your experience. Um, of obedience and faithfulness and uh, how you have experienced what the disciples did in God giving you the, the capacity to serve him well. <laughs> well, there's the, there, maybe there's the assumption there that I've always been obedient or I've always been faithful and neither of which would be true. But one of the things I love about, um, one of the things I love about walking with the Lord and reading his word, and, and I do love his word and, and, it, and it's in a nutshell when Jesus looks at all of us, 
and he says, follow me. That, that phrase, follow me, is really just an invitation to come and die. That's why, Paul, that's why Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God. So this, this thing, when we see Jesus and we, we want to follow him, I think it, 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 the, the, it, it requires us. Following Jesus requires that we take all of our rights, all of the things that we think we own, that we have a right to, that just run the gamut, and we lay them down at his feet. And we surrender all of that to him. And then we give him the right to, or we submit to the right that he can either give those things back to us mm-hmm. or he can take them. And then we draw our identity from him. But I think the, the thing for me in my walk, whether I've been obedient or faithful or not, the, the thing that I come back to time and time again is that it's a daily, I mean, that's why Jesus says, take up your cross daily. It's a daily surrender. I wake up and I surrender again, just like I did the day before. And, and I yield to him like, Lord, King, and like, what, what would you have for me today? Like, how can I serve you? And that, I, you know, I can't, I don't want to speak much about my obedience or faithfulness because Lord knows I, I, I goof, but I, I do, I do love him and I do desire to walk with him. And I, I do believe it's a daily surrender thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book is titled They Turned the World Upside Down, A Storyteller's Journey with Those Who Dared to Follow Jesus. It is a story well told. Um, and I think it's very compelling because in addition to just telling the story, you encourage us to to consider how it relates to our walk with the Lord. And I uh, really appreciated how you managed to do that and to capture my attention at the same time. Uh, the book is published by uh, Thomas Nelson. It's currently available. Thank you so much for the book and for taking time to talk with us about it here today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Again, the book, the, They Turned the World Upside Down, beautifully, beautifully written. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You just heard from Charles Martin. His book is They Turned the World Upside Down, a journey with those who dared to follow Jesus and the impact they made. Well, I wanted to tell you about a contemporary who made an impact, Fred Carter. Now, you probably aren't familiar with his name. His name didn't appear on his art, and he was an artist. Most of the millions who have seen it don't know who he is, but Fred Carter's art is unforgettable. He drew the bodies that were heavy, weighted with uh, human uh, with humanity and the possibility of redemption. He painted biblical characters who seemed real enough that their struggles and stories could be the viewer's own. He depicted sin so that it was tempting salvation. So it mattered. Well, his art was reproduced by the millions. It was distributed across the country and around the world while he remained in anonymity. Now, you may be wondering, who is Fred Carter? Well, Fred Carter was an African-American artist who drew gospel tracts, uh, evangelical comic books and Black Sunday school curricula. He died on the 9th of May at the age of 83. He was the close collaborator with Jack Chick, the pioneer of the popular evangelistic cartoon known as the Chick Track. 
Now, we've probably all had an encounter or two with them. According to Christian Comics International, and yes, there's a Christian Comics International, more than half of Chick tracks were drawn by Carter. He worked with uh, Chick for eight years before the Chick acknowledged the partnership, despite the obvious dramatic difference between the men's two art styles. Some suspected that Chick was trying to hide Carter's contributions, perhaps out of a desire to claim all the credit or out of a fear that the presence of a black man would spark controversy. In any case, he was responsible for much of the memorable art on those tracks. Uh, Chick, for his part, said the decision was Carter's, so we may never know. Fred is rather shy and declines to put his name on the art. I like that version of the story. Let's hope that one's true. Well, Carter appears to have only given one interview in his 49-year career. Speaking briefly to a Los Angeles Times reporter in Rancho Cucamonga uh, in 2003, his um, statement was simple and straightforward about his calling. It's almost not like a job, he said. It's like a ministry I always wanted to be in. Well, about his uh, working relationship with Chick, I had pretty free reign on how to do it, but he did tell me what he wanted. About his art, he said, that's what I always wanted to do, end quote. And that's pretty much it. Well, Fred Carter was born in Danville, Illinois in 1938. Little is known about his family, but he had an older brother who was artistic and inspired him to draw and paint. The brother died at a young age, but Fred, he continued. A high school teacher persuaded him to submit his artwork to a contest run by the American Academy of Art in Chicago, and he won second place, according to his staff bio at Chick Publications, and he was awarded a scholarship to attend the school. He was forced to drop out after one year, however. His uh, economic prospects were limited. He worked as a busboy in a restaurant and then at a decal factory. This was, of course, in the 40s. So it's not altogether surprising. Well, his life changed in the early 1970s when a friend at church showed him something that he had picked up in a Chicago uh, area, a chick track. It was most likely um, This Was Your Life or A Demon's Nightmare. Some of you remember those tracks from the 70s and maybe those too. They were the most popular two titles from the newly founded Chick Publications. Well, the style was wildly different from Carter's with simply drawn slightly shaded figures. The 32 or 33 year old Christian artist felt a thrill of recognition. He says of that time, I had always wanted to use art in a Christian setting. I was, I saw it and it impressed me because uh, that's what I always wanted to do. Well, Carter sent Chick, the founder and developer of Chick Tracks, a letter and some of his artwork. He moved to California in 72. He started drawing tracks. The company photo from the following year shows a staff of 19 people. Carter was the only black person among them. Well, Carter's first track may have been The Lost Generation, rather the last generation, sort of interchangeable. It starts with the Supreme Court of uh, one world government ruling that anyone who says Jesus is the only way to salvation will be committed to a mental camp for treatment and or executed. Now, at the time in the 70s, that didn't seem very plausible, but fast forward to the 21st, 21st century and yeah, might uh, might happen. Well, the story reflected the apocalypticism common among the evangelicals at the time and fundamentalists then mixing references um, to indoctrinated uh, children, the Nazis, New Age spirituality, high-tech surveillance used by an expansive, powerful government, and so on. The art, however, was more sophisticated than anything Chick Publications had produced previously. Well, the panel wouldn't have been out uh, out of place at Marvel Comics or in the popular illustrated versions of classic novels like Treasure Island or Robinson Crusoe. They were that good and 
consistent with that genre. Well, another early standout among Carter's tracks was The Sissy. It was first published in 1978. It tells the story of a burly, brawling, tough-talking truck driver named Duke. It's a man's world, Duke says in an opening panel. You got to be tough to survive. Well, Duke initially rejected Jesus because any man who said to turn the other cheek must be a sissy, but then learns that Jesus fought a brutal knockdown drag out fight for his soul. Christ is shown crucified, his skin ripped raw, <clears throat> excuse me, muscles seeming to explode from the chest. That Jesus, the converted truck driver concluded, had more guts than any man uh, that ever lived in quote. Well, fans of chick tracks, including collectors of underground comics, noticed the dramatic change in style and they started asking, who the good artist was. Nobody knew his name for a very long time. One art critic said from the Comics Journal, Chick's own 50-ish magazine gag look uh, couldn't be more different from Carter's detailed uh, muscularity, entirely self-taught with a prodigious gift for caricature of puffy, beefy faces. Uh, Corbin-esque, he described. And well, all of that said, in 1974, two years after Chick and Carter started working together, they launched a comic book series called The Crusaders. It featured two heroes who vaguely looked like them. Tim Clark, the white hero, is a former Green Beret. Jim Carter, black, is a former drug dealer and street fighter trained by black militants. Well, the interracial duo went on adventures for Christ. In the first three issues, they deliver a microfilm Bible to Christians opposed by communists and uh, convert a female spy sent to, to, to uh, seduce Tim. They rescue a town overrun by child-sacrificing Satanists. They come to the aid's of an African-American political leader whose uh, government has been infiltrated by communists and so on. It was a product of the time. Well, graphic novelist David Clowers discovered the Crusaders as a boy and then called it one of the sickest comics he'd ever read, but it told a story. Well, with Chick's approval, Carter pushed on with a painting project. He expanded it to include the story of creation, the Exodus, Isaiah's messianic prophecy, and much, much more. Carter died of heart failure, failure rather, earlier this month. He survived by his wife, Lee, and children, Christine and Leon. And this uh, rather kitschy, once a very popular movement within the Christian uh, faith, the Chick Track, we now know was illustrated in large part by one anonymous um, artist whose name you probably had never heard, Frederick E. Carter. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time. I want to thank Sam Maupin for engineering. James Blend is out on vacation. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night, and I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.